first one is easy. Says I live in New Mexico. You have any students there that I could contact? If not, suggestions on how I should proceed are greatly appreciated. Yes, there are students in New Mexico, and Tony has name and address. Okay. <laughs> Meditative absorptions, jhana, is plural. You spoke of the first one this morning. How many are there? And will you briefly describe the others? Well, there are eight meditative absorptions. And um, if I remember right, they are explained in my book, when the iron eagle flies. All eight. I will talk about the second one and possibly the third one tomorrow just to give an idea what the next steps could be. I don't think there's any point in going any further in the explanation at this time it's not um, really useful but they are in the book also you mentioned neighborhood concentration please repeat what this is and how it relates to jhana well it may not relate at all <laughs> it may or may not a neighborhood concentration is a state where one has the idea that one is constantly on the breath and that simultaneously there are some thoughts in the background. This is only an idea. There is no such thing as simultaneously. The, um, what the mind's doing, it's going from attention on the breath to the thought, to the breath, to the thought, to the breath. But the thoughts are diffused and they're not solid and they don't seem to have any content so there's no need to label anything there's no need to do anything actually except to have a little more determination to become one with the breath that the mind and the breath become one and at that time when that happens full concentration might result and if it does it's the entry to the jhana to the first jhana but neighborhood concentration and jhana are not really related because they, the one has nothing to do with the other but one can eventually make something out of it one certainly shouldn't label it's not necessary at that time or it's, it's a disturbance there's another thing which I have omitted to say, which became clear in some of the interviews. And uh, so I'll um, say it now. That if you feel that you can watch the breath without counting, without a word, without watching any sensation, without a picture, that's a time to drop that extra crutch and just be with the breath. 
when you feel that any of those things are only a disturbance that's a time when the mind is concentrated enough to just be with the breath and as you become more and more concentrated you will realize that the mind does not have to be outside of the breath the mind is within that that it knows whatever it knows that's where the mind is and the more that happens the easier it is to have full concentration <laughs> would you please talk to us about letting go when I let go of something I feel relieved and unburdened as if I have let go completely but sooner or later that something returns is letting go a continual process or can it be done completely once and for all? Well, no, it's a continual process. It uh, keeps on happening all the time until full enlightenment. And letting go of one thing, even if that thing doesn't return, that attachment or whatever it was, something else is there to be let go of that's a continual process until we have completely let go of the idea the mental formation the viewpoint that we are somebody once we've let go of that then there's no difficulty anymore in letting go of everything but until then it's a continual thing to be done over and over again if the same thing returns that of course means that the attachment is very strong usually something new comes up that one can let go of did the Buddhist say anything about mental illness what is the Buddhist medicine for the seriously mentally ill patients there's a story in the scriptures of a woman named Kisa Gotame Kisa Gotame married late in life and then had a little baby boy and he was the apple of her eye and everything was always only important in reference to this little boy when the little boy was three years old he became ill and died and the family of her husband turned against her saying it was her fault and she was so grief-stricken so bereaved that her mind snapped she wouldn't accept that the little boy had died she carried the little corpse around in her arms asking everyone whom she could find whether they knew any medicine for her sick child <clears throat> and eventually nobody answered her anymore because they realized that she had become um, mentally disturbed but one day she again approached somebody with the same question and that person realized that maybe the Buddha could help her and so he said yes he knew someone 
that would be able to help her. So immediately she asked to be taken there. So he took her to the Buddha. And when she arrived there, she asked the Buddha for some medicine for the actually dead child. And the Buddha said, yes, he would tell her the medicine. And of course, immediately her mind became a little more open and joyful. And she said, what it, asked him what it was. And he, she, he told her she should go into the nearest village and ask at the nearest house for a handful of mustard seeds. And she was just about to run off and do that when the Buddha said, but you can only take the mustard seed if you find out that nobody has died in that house. So she said, yes, she'd do that. So she went down to the village and she went to the first house and asked for mustard seed. And of course, this is a commodity that in India every house has. So the woman in the house was willing to give it. And then Kisa Gotami asked her if anybody had died in the house. And the woman said, yes, grandfather had died. So she said, oh, I can't take your mustard seed. So she went to the next house. And there a maid had died. And then she went to the next house. And there the uh, husband had died. And she went from house to house. And in every house somebody had died. Until she came to the last house. And again somebody had died there. So she came back to the Buddha without the mustard seed. But with the full understanding that whatever is born must die. And at that time her mind became clear again. She also became a nun at that time, and the scriptures say that later in life she became enlightened. This is the only story I know in the scriptures about mental illness. It's a teaching that could help her then, but it was also the presence of the Buddha, which had a strong influence on people, because it's not the words it's what's behind the words. So, the medicine which the Buddha always prescribed was always the Dhamma. But there are people probably whom one can't reach. These are karmic resultants. I know it is different for everybody but could you offer your recapit recapitulation of how you enter the first chamber, pity, first jhana? How do you let go of mind and self-assertion and fall into the experience of the breath? Oh, well, these are two questions, I would say, of how you enter the first uh, jhana. The recapitulation that we should do after we have actually experienced it is nothing but a re-arousing in the memory of every step we have taken. When we sat down, did we sit differently? When we started the meditation, what method did we use? Did we feel differently? Did we think differently? Did we do anything that was a trigger? Anything at all 
that seemed to be a little different from usual. That's all we need to do. The recap will have to go on several times until we have a clear pathway. When we finally have a clear pathway, we don't have to do it again. We know exactly how to get in there. It has to be so clear that it is simple to get there so that we are not in any way surprised or the mind turns around in uh, other expectations. So we just recap everything that we have done. What was our entry? How did we do it? How do you let go of mind and self-assertion and... Oh, yeah. How do you go, let go of mind and self-assertion and fall into the experience of the breath? <laughs> That's a $64 question, isn't it? <laughs> um, instead of using the words watching the breath observing the breath if you use the word experiencing the breath or being the breath or nothing other than breath maybe that will make it clearer when we observe or watch then we seem to be like someone who has gone to the movies and is sitting there watching the movie. But if we identify with one of the heroes or the heroines in the movie, maybe we can feel as if we are actually a participant in that movie. So if we identify with the breath at that time, not it's my breath or this is me, but nothing other than breath, then it becomes easier to just let the mind and the breath become one. Self-assertion is the cause for thinking. To let go of self-assertion completely means to be enlightened. So it's not really the kind of practice that we can try to do at the time of meditation. But what we can try to do is to let go of all the extraneous matter that arises and realizing that every time we want to think it's nothing but self-assertion and not justify the thinking or even hang on to it. When we know that, that it's just self that wants to know it's there, it's a little easier to let go of the thoughts. So the manner of getting into it is more the experiencing, the being of the breath, than trying not to have any self-assertion. The latter will not be terribly successful.
that takes a little while. I'm very vain. In fact, I was in a near-fatal car accident because I was too busy looking at myself in the rearview mirror instead of at the cars. Of course, the insurance company isn't aware of these facts. <laughs> we won't tell them. <laughs> no no not this anyway. <laughs> but that's another karmic dilemma. As I reflect on decay, I feel extremely sad. How can I transform this sadness into insight? Well, it practically is already insight. Because feeling sad about decay means that one is trying to work, work against a law of nature. It means that one isn't able to flow with reality but trying to put a stop to it so that's already inside that one is sad about it now all one has to really do at that time is to look at the decay for instance in this forest or if that isn't good enough Maybe go to an old age home if you haven't got any old people at home. Or when you, when you see yourself in the mirror, compare it to the photos taken 10 years ago. That's usually quite impactful. And then seeing that there's nothing one can do about it. That's the way it is. It's a fire element that destroys. So when one realizes that it's not a personal problem, but that it is universal characteristic, then maybe one can feel at ease about it because if one feels sad about it it means nothing but dukkha sadness is dukkha and dukkha is arising because one doesn't want it the way it is one wants it differently now we can one can try immediately to let go of that wish that it should be different and all the dukkha is gone. It just is. It's the way it is, always has been, always will be. All materiality has to disintegrate. There's no other way. So the body does. And when one accepts and no longer wishes it to be different, no sadness, no dukkha. The insight into impermanence can arise out of watching the impermanent nature of one's own breath, one's own thoughts, one's own emotions, 
the impermanence of each second that we live each day that we live all gone what's there to be said about would you like to have all the days of your life back <laughs> nobody wants that in fact we're quite glad most of them are gone that's the way it is so dukkha arises when we want something other than the way it is something we haven't got then we get dukkha and here the sadness the dukkha is totally unnecessary unwarranted because here the wish is for something none of us can have and this is actually one of the features of human life we're trying to get something none of us can have we want to get happiness and peace through outside conditions it's just not available the same here non decay is not available <laughs> why does full concentration bring happiness well first of all it brings purification concentration brings purification and purification has already the connotation of being unburdened if there's no thought or emotion of hate or craving obviously there is a feeling of lightness Full concentration brings happiness because essentially we carry that within us and when we are concentrated we can touch upon it we've all got it constantly within us and we can only get at it if we remove the debris of thinking and emoting and can get inside of ourselves through concentration that's why it brings happiness after the body dies what will happen to the mind can the mind exist without the body yes it certainly can when doing the body scan I can feel myself swimming in the bodily fluids touching the bones and muscles flying in the air is this fantasy or imagination and if so how does one discern true experience does it have a different quality or does one just know well swimming in the bodily fluids and touching the bones and muscles through one's attention can be a true experience flying in the air most likely not i haven't seen anybody flying around yet so 
I don't think that's a true experience. So that's more likely to be imagination. We can tell the difference between experience and imagination through feeling. What we can actually feel is what we experience. If we feel angry, we're experiencing anger. If we feel love, we're experiencing love. If we can feel the muscles or bones in our body, we're experiencing them. If we can feel the bodily fluids, we're experiencing them. Now, should there be a feeling of floating or flying, then that means that we're experiencing the first meditative absorption. What we experience through feeling, that's an experience. What we think up, that's imagination. When we experience it through feeling, it has great impact, and nobody can tell us otherwise. What we have felt, we know. Specifically, if we have understood our experience, and it's totally different from thinking it up or thinking about it. Thoughts can be a trigger to the experience. What is duality? You and me, that's duality. Or me and the tree. Or wanting and having all that's duality everything the way we think on the ordinary level of marketplace mentality is duality everything we know until a totally new level of consciousness has arisen is duality the way the world lives is in duality because we're standing outside of the world looking at it. We don't think we are it. We think we are looking at it. When you go up into this beautiful forest and you stand there looking at it, that's duality. When you are the tree, that's unity. I have some aversion and dislike towards the sweeping technique. But I think it would be very useful for me to do it. Yet, I find it difficult to change my attitude. And with a negative mind state, it's not a good starting point anyway with this method. A negative mind state is not a good starting point for any method. I tend to wanting to rush through the body. as most sensations I experience are not very strong or tangible or I don't feel anything at all or it's unclear for example right upper arm I'm not sure if I feel a sensation staying at the spot or moving if there isn't a sensation to be felt 
one should stay a little longer, but not so long that one gets stuck there. Just staying a little longer and see whether the sensation arises, and if not, going to the next spot. As one becomes more practiced at it, it becomes easier. I'm still not sure yet if I feel anything. Maybe I do. Or is it just thinking? Or maybe a real feeling? It's hard to distinguish what reality is and what just thinking. I don't think it's very difficult to distinguish between thinking and feeling. If you walk around and you stub your big toe on a rock, you don't have to think it, you feel it. And when your body sits on the pillow, you don't have to think it. You feel that it's touching. And when you're hot, you feel it. And when you're cold, you feel it. You don't think it. Now, these are strong sensations. But even mild sensations one can feel. One wouldn't think sensations. How does one know which sensation to think up? I put my full attention on my left upper arm. Which sensation am I going to think up? Either I feel it or I don't. And having felt it, I may be able to name it, which is not necessary, but one can do so. It's very important to get to know one's feelings and not confuse them with, with one's thinking. Thinking can be a reaction to feeling, but it would be totally unclear what one would have to imagine in order to have a sensation. So all one has to do is put one's attention on the body parts, the spots, and leave, it, leave the attention there a little bit longer if there's no sensation, and then move on. And as one does it more often, it becomes quite clear that one is feeling something. It seems like we are creating or thinking our ideas about reality anyway. Any suggestions and comments? Yes, we are creating ideas about what we think is reality. But the reality that we live in is also a certain kind of reality. It's the one we know. It's the one imbued with duality. It's not always pleasant, that reality. And 
if we don't like it and don't know any other way of getting out of it, some people create a fantasy reality in their minds. Some people take to drugs or alcohol to get out of this reality. And some people make the best of it and try to live with it. Most people do, the latter. But it is a sort of reality. It is uh, the only one we know until we get to know a different one. And within that reality, we have created it because we have looked at it in a certain way. And until we can look at it in a different way, it will remain with us. So, certainly it's our mind content. And everybody creates their own reality. And it's not the same as everybody else's. If you think for a moment, we have several people walking through the forest. The first one might be a ranger. And he's only concerned that the aftergrowth should not catch fire. So he looks around to see whether it needs to be cut. And the second one might be a cattle man. And he is looking at the forest to see if it couldn't be cut down so he'd have more grazing space. And the third one is a conservationist. And he thinks about writing a letter to the government to get it declared a national park. And the fourth one is a botanist. And he's making little notes in his uh, diary of all the different plants he sees, the names, and maybe even a drawing. They're all walking in the same forest, but they all have a different reality, whatever they got interested in. And that's the way we create our reality and that's quite valid that's the way it is but there is an absolute one which is the same for everybody but that we have to do and get to through diligent practice so the, the difference between thinking and feeling should not be very difficult one of the really important ways of getting closer to oneself is to know what we're feeling. Could you describe what a retreat on Nuns Island would be like? What would the general structure, what would be the general structure of your day? I don't live on Nuns Island anymore. I founded it and uh, lived there and was the, how to say, director of it. But in 1989 I left 
because the conditions in Sri Lanka were such that it didn't seem a suitable place anymore to try and teach. The conditions were such that the women I was teaching didn't dare leave their houses anymore. Meanwhile, the conditions are much better, have changed again, and two of my nuns are there. They're my, they were my students, they were ordained on the island. One is Australian, one is Sri Lankan. The Sri Lankan one also speaks perfect English. She used to be a teacher. I don't know what the structure of their day is. You'd have to write to them and ask. I, I don't know how they use their time. I presume that they do it similar to what we did, but I can't say exactly. So there's meditation and uh, sitting and walking and studying the Dhamma and also doing some selfless service. Please, could you talk about the different difference experientially between neighborhood concentration and the dwelling in the first jhana? There seems to be a state now in my practice that is a joyful dwelling place for the mind, secluded or protected from the hindrances, but still vulnerable. I can still hear sounds, or rather, the experience of hearing arises, but it is background to the object of meditation. Is this still neighborhood concentration, or is it the first jhana? It is supremely pleasant and serene, and there is a radiant sense of shining in the mind. Well, it certainly sounds like first jhana. Neighborhood concentration doesn't have any feeling of uh, a pleasure in it. It doesn't have any feeling of radiance in it. It doesn't have anything... Um, it doesn't even have serenity in it. It's far more pleasant than sitting there thinking all the time, neighborhood concentration. <laughs> but it doesn't have what is described here at all. It's still a state of, um, of trying and uh, a state of the mind not being one-pointed, but more or less diffuse, actually. But when there is pleasant and serene and radiance, it's actually probably already the second jhana and not the first one. But of course the first one is sensation and the second one is joy. So it says it's extremely joyful. So probably have bypassed the first one, which is also not uncommon. It's okay. And um, gone to the second one, which is joyful, has serenity in it, and also radiance. What one should do is try to stay in it for a good while, and then dropping it on purpose 
even though it's joyful and pleasant and serene, dropping it on purpose and going to the next one. The next one, the third one, is utter contentment, which creates a depth of peacefulness. So I'll um, explain that also in more detail again tomorrow because also there are insights arising from both of these which are extremely important. But it's certainly the first, it could even be the second jhana, there's no way for me to tell from this, but it doesn't matter whichever one it is, stay with it. (laughs) It's a thing to do. <laughs> Could you tell us a little about your training in the Dhamma? Did you practice with Ubakin or Mahasi Sayadaw in Burma? Who were your teachers in Thailand? Do you think that Mr. Gwenka teaches the Dhamma correctly? <laughs> I have no thoughts on that last one none whatsoever. I did not train with Ubakin nor with Mahasi Sayado. I did go to the Ubakin center, but Ubakin was dead already. And uh, I did learn the sweeping there. I met Mahasi Sayado, but only once as a social visit. My teachers in Thailand, Tanachan Mahabua and Tanachan Sing Tong. My main teacher, the one that I'm calling my teacher was the Venerable Jnana Rama Mahatera in Sri Lanka. He died in 92, uh, yes, two years ago, at the age of 91. And uh, lived all his life, practically, as a monk, all his monk's life, in the jungle in Sri Lanka. He's He's the one whom I asked whether the meditative absorptions, the way I was practicing them, were correct. And he asked me to teach them because they have become a lost art. Until then, until he confirmed them and asked me to teach them, I never said a word about them. And since then, which was 1983, I've been teaching them and more and more and uh, in the beginning only a little and now more and more until the teaching as you have it now. And I have actually experienced the very um, wondrous uh, fact that most people can do them. Even in a week's course can get an inkling of at least the first jhana. And a week's not really very long. We used to go into the forest for at least three months so that we could stabilize them and make them more perfect. So a week amidst the redwoods is quite a marvelous 
um, undertaking. Even if one hasn't got to it in a week, it doesn't mean anything because it's too short a time, actually. But it's been my experience all over the world, and I've been teaching in many different countries, not in all countries, but in many different countries, that wherever people are directed and guided, it is a natural way for their mind to go. This afternoon, I decided to go for a short walk on the Emerald Forest Trail. In the back of my mind, I had two questions. What really does the craving for existence mean? It sounded too theoretical to me. And what does ego have to do with the three cravings, if anything at all? Well, to make a very long story short, I thought that Back, but it did not. After one hour and 15 minutes, <laughs> fearful that I might get lost and fearful that I might be humiliate, humiliated being seen returning in a taxi cab, <laughs> if the trail ended in Sokel, <laughs> I turned around once, I returned around, once I began my return, an answer popped into my head, ego is humankind's attempt to relieve itself from its craving for existence, rather than I think, therefore I am, it should be I become, therefore I am. Not quite. <laughs> Am I on the right track or still lost on that trail? <laughs> well, the first sentence is very good. Ego is humankind's attempt to relieve itself from its craving for existence. It's um, not quite the craving for existence is the is the ego's cause for being the ego and the craving for existence go hand in hand so to relieve oneself from the craving for existence no not that if we want to relieve ourselves from the craving for existence we need to practice we need to practice to find out that we are actually on the wrong trail. We are on a trail which leads nowhere. But the craving for existence and ego are actually synonymous. The same thing. All one can say, because there is craving for existence, there is ego. One can also say, because there is ego, there is craving for existence. It's exactly the same thing. I think, therefore, I am. Yes, that's utter nonsense. I fully agree. I am, therefore, I think. 
that's the way it is. As long as there's the I am, so long there is the I think. It's interesting. Descartes and none of the philosophers ever really found peace and happiness. In fact, quite a number of the more famous ones committed suicide. So, it was um, not the wrong trail, but not quite yet the uh, not quite the right way of expressing it, but certainly a good attempt at insight and no longer maybe so theoretical. But there was another thing entailed in this whole experience, namely, having got lost, fear arose. That's craving for existence. That's actually what really happened. It's not theoretical. It happens. So this was a wonderful experience. Very helpful, but of course one can't now suggest that everybody should get lost. How did your having to flee Germany as a child influence your pull to meditation and Buddhist practice? I have no idea. I was 14 and I started meditating when I was 39. I have no idea. You have said that Buddhism is not a belief system, but something you can try out for yourself to see if it's true. What do you experience with reincarnation? In other words, how do you know it to be true? We call it rebirth usually, but it's the same thing. It's uh, not helpful to think about it as something that may happen in the future, but it's very helpful to think about it and to experience it every morning. We have lived this day, which was all we had. That's our whole life. The past is irrevocably gone, and the future is yet to come. And when it comes, it's called the present. It never really can be experienced. So we've had our whole life today, and going to bed, we die a small death and don't know what's going on anymore. And then there we are again tomorrow morning with the same thought processes we had the day before, namely, I am. And we bring with us the karma from the day before, the weeks before, the years before, lifetimes before. But mainly, we bring with us the immediate karma resultants. And we probably have all experienced 
having been very angry and upset a certain day and waking up with that. And on the other hand, being very happy and joyful and waking up with that. We bring our karma resultants with us. Waking up next morning, the day the life starts. It's young, the day is young, we are still young, and as the day progresses, we become older and more tired, and then die a small death death again. That way, we can experience our own rebirth on a level from day to day. In reality, in absolute reality, not relative, but absolute, we are reborn every second. And we can eventually experience that. It's just a matter of turning one's mind into a totally different direction. And in that different direction, there are totally different experiences. So, it's not very helpful to worry about it after death. Because the one who gets reborn is neither the same nor another. The answer lies in the middle. But we wouldn't know who it is. So, all that concerns us is what's happening now. And that's quite interesting what's happening now. So there we have a possibility for experiencing our own rebirth every morning until we can eventually experience our rebirth every moment. The person we were is no longer there. Although it may sound a little bizarre, I think the following problem may be a real obstacle to my practice. I wonder whether people with unwholesome intentions can make significant progress in developing concentration and insight. My intentions are not all wholesome, perhaps not very wholesome at all. On the one hand, I want to become an arahant and benefit all beings. Oh, that's very wholesome. But perhaps I really just want to be famous and powerful. (laughs) In the near past, some, including Dhamma teachers, have used the gains they've made practicing the Dhamma to hurt people. I already hurt people enough. I don't need any extra abilities in this regard. Perhaps I'm blocking my progress until more assured of my purity. Any comments or suggestions would possibly help. The first comment that comes to mind is forget the whole thing. It it doesn't matter. Just practice. Just do it. There's nothing to think about. To want to become an arahant is wholesome intention, certainly. To want to become powerful or famous, no arahant. Very simple. The Buddha said like this, 
There is suffering but no sufferer. There is a deed but no doer. There is a path but no one to enter it. There is Nibbana but no one to attain it. As long as I want to be Arahant, one can be sure one isn't going to be. There is no I that can be Arahant. The only thing that we could possibly say or think as a goal is to get rid of all dukkha. And having got rid of all dukkha, to help others to also get rid of their dukkha. That sounds more realistic. It's still the same thing, but it sounds more realistic. And to get rid of all dukkha doesn't mean under any circumstances that we're going to change outside conditions. They always fall apart again. What we do is we change the inside condition. So it's perfectly all right to have that as a goal. I wouldn't worry about <clears throat> Dhamma teachers and I wouldn't worry about others hurting people. The main thing is oneself doesn't do that. We can't stop anybody else from hurting someone. But we can stop ourselves. And that's all that's necessary. So, purity within means substituting wholesome, unwholesome thought with wholesome, substituting unwholesome emotion with wholesome. That's very simple, really. And doing it constantly, finding every opportunity a challenge to have love and compassion, finding every opportunity to be helpful. We don't even have to think about becoming Arahant. But we certainly can think about being helpful. As much as we have progressed ourselves, so much we can help. And if our attention, intention is to be helpful, most certainly good karma. Whatever has been our inner experience, that's as far as we can help. So we can be thankful for any help that we can get from anyone and can be intent on giving as much help as we can give. To become Arahant, I like to compare with the top of the mountain, enlightenment, where the view is magnificent, the air is pure, and everybody is happy. So living in the valley, one has the intention of going up that mountain and being on that mountaintop. One starts climbing. If one keeps one's eyes on the mountaintop, which is shrouded in fog anyway, and one can't see it, but if one keeps one's eyes up there, one isn't paying attention to every step, and was undoubtedly 
land in the first gully. But watching each step, being mindful of what one is doing on each step, undoubtedly one will progress. And even getting up this mountainside a little ways, one already has a much better view. The horizon is larger and one sees everything with a bird's eye view. It's quite different from being down in the valley. So once we have heard and known through um, hearing about it that there is such a mountaintop and we do want to climb it, then all we can do is watch each step. Be attentive to each step. And if we're diligent enough, we're going to get there. A thousand mile journey starts with the first step. Also, I think that if someone has the intention to become enlightened and help other beings, I don't think there is that real wish to be famous and powerful. Now, there's a whole lot of questions here. Maybe I'll pick some, huh? <laughs> I have heard that the Buddha said, hatred is never conquered by hatred. It's conquered by love alone. And that's true. That's his statement. Um, it is difficult not to become bitter and reactionary when within one year your car is stolen, your home is burglarized, and your cousin is murdered. I'm tired of moving away, trying to distance myself from crime. It appears to be like an inoperable cancer, always something. Well, inoperable cancer. Crime is likened to being an operable cancer. Well, it's inoperable from the outside. It can be operated upon from the inside. But um, if one has these very unfortunate experiences all within one year, which are listed here, one really has to accept the fact that one is reaping bad karma resultants. Now, the bad karma resultants that are being, that one has is the stolen car and the burglarized house. The cousin which is murdered is only a side issue because it didn't happen to oneself. It makes one sad, but it isn't happening to oneself. So it's not particularly personal karma involved. But with the car and the burglarizing of the house, one needs to look at it as a totally, on a totally objective basis. Karma is not crime and punishment. Karma is cause and effect. And we have no idea what causes we have put into motion to have such effects. The person who did that, who did the uh, put the causes into motion, last life or ten lives ago, 
is someone totally unknown to us. So this karmic resultant, while it is now happening, may not be something that we have created in this life. On the other hand, we haven't created a good enough situation from our own karma to make that bad karma inoperable. So the only thing that one needs to learn out of that situation is to make more good karma through generosity and helpfulness. This is, these are the ways of making good karma. Lovingness, helpfulness, generosity. How do you embrace those elements in society that are blatantly destroying the simple qualities of life? We don't like the crime, but we can love the criminal. The crime which is happening, according to this, the destruction that's taking place, it's part of the unwholesome roots in humanity. Once we get to know our own unwholesome roots of hate, greed and delusion and have compassion for that, we're no longer surprised at the unwholesomeness in other people. They are exactly the same as we are. After the Second World War, I seem to remember that there was a book out in America which was called It Can't Happen Here. Nonsense. It can happen everywhere. We are all the same. All we can do is combat the unwholesome roots within ourselves through developing the wholesome ones. That's our line of attack. The development of the wholesome ones then creates that space within us where the unwholesome ones don't have a chance anymore to flourish. That's all we can do. Disliking the people that are doing wrong things is like disliking oneself. What for? We're all in it together. And we've all done wrong things. Maybe not criminal things, but wrong things. And who knows whether we didn't do criminal things in past lives. Who knows? We don't know. We don't know that person. All we can do is start right now, this moment, and make a determination that we will create as much good karma and develop as much our wholesome roots of generosity, love and wisdom as we possibly can. And the more we develop the wholesome roots of generosity, love and wisdom, the more of it exists in the world. We are not separated. We are not alien from each other. We live together. 
We breathe the same air, we eat the same food, we're here together. And when badness takes over, we all suffer together. So when we create the goodness within ourselves, it's not something that we ourselves only benefit from, humanity benefits. The more of us can do that, the more benefit there will be. If we finally find peace within our hearts, we are the peacemakers. We don't even have to say a word. Peace emanates. Goodness emanates from us. So that's our line of attack and defense. Nothing else matters. If we look at it in another way, we feel totally powerless. We feel like we're being victims of it all. We're only victims if we allow ourselves to be. When we don't allow ourselves to be victims, we become actors with action. And then that's our way of progressing on the spiritual path. How do you stay compassionate and remain open while being preyed upon? Well, it's not very clear what that being preyed upon is like. Is it the burglarizing, I suppose? Well, that, that too isn't very difficult. If somebody steals they're obviously making very bad karma. So, what do we do? We have compassion with them. They're going to reap the results of that bad karma. Karma, cause and effect, is totally impersonal. It has nothing to do with the person. It just operates as a law of nature. So if somebody steals from us, only compassion for that person that's making such bad karma and are probably even going to reap the results in this lifetime. It's very likely. Can one combat the destructive elements where one lives without creating negative karma for oneself and more self-righteous delusion. One can combat the destructive elements within oneself. Having combated the destructive elements within oneself, one becomes an actor for the goodness that exists everywhere. And there's a story in the Pali Canon. It may be symbolic, or it may be a true story, I can't say. But the Buddha had a cousin who was very jealous of him. His name was Devadatta. And he tried to kill the Buddha three times. And never succeeded. Because he wanted to have the position of the Buddha. He wanted to be in charge of the Sangha. 
and he wanted to be the uh, one that got all the gifts that were given to the Buddha. His third attempt at killing the Buddha was getting a rogue male elephant out of the king's stables and chasing him down the road where the Buddha was walking. Such an elephant can kill one with one hit of his paw. And he was wild and furious, that elephant. And he came nearer and nearer to where the Buddha was walking with his monks. And the monks all scattered. But another cousin of the Buddha, Ananda, who was his attendant, stood in front of the Buddha to protect him. And the Buddha said, Ananda, move away. But Ananda wouldn't go. So the story says the Buddha made the earth roll a little and rolled Ananda away. <laughs> and then this elephant came rushing up to the Buddha, trumpeting and stump, stomping the earth. And then as he came near to the Buddha, he braked and he stopped. And then he put down his trunk and he cl uh, cleaned up the feet of the Buddha from the sand that he had through his stomping actually put onto the feet and then the Buddha blessed him and he peacefully walked back to the stable it is said that the loving kindness of the Buddha stopped the wild elephant if it's symbolic, it's meant to tell us that whatever we have generated within ourselves, that will be our defense system. That will be that which will also not only protect us, but protect everything in our surrounding. And it works as far as one has developed it. The loving-kindness in one's heart is not just a feeling, it's an emanation. And that emanation is felt, if it's strong enough. So that's how one can combat destructive elements. But one needs to, of course, do the work first. Sometimes I think karma is just a five-letter word. The wicked don't always appear to get their mail in a timely fashion. <laughs> They're uppins, I suppose, huh? Um, no, they don't. And this is very interesting. We probably all know some people whom we think are really non-deserving people. And... They seem to live very happily and comfortably. And then we probably know others who seem to be very good and kind and have one calamity after another. That is karma. That's all it is. It's not a lottery. It's not chaotic. It's not potluck. It's karma. We don't know 
what these people's intentions have been in the past. We can't look inside of them and know whether those people who seem so undeserving have had some excellent intentions in this life or past lives. And we don't know whether those people who seem so nice and kind and have one calamity after another haven't caused calamities in the past for others. We have no idea. The karmic resultants are a given, but they do not relieve us from helping those who need help. Because if we did stop helping others, we'd make bad karma. So other people's karma is their fortune or misfortune. It's their inheritance. Our good karma is our inheritance. As you sow, you will reap. It's not just Buddhist. And it says at the bottom, are we just experiencing a dark time? Yes, well, in, in Hindu terminology, this is the Kali Yuga, and that's actually a time of destruction. But in the Buddhist um, commentaries, we find a different story, which is far more hopeful. It says that the teaching of this last Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, will exist for 5,000 years after his Parinibbana, after his death. And then, the words, Anicca Dukkha Anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, substancelessness, will not be heard again until the next Buddha arises. <clears throat> the next Buddha is supposed to be called Maitri Buddha, which means loving-kindness Buddha. And it will take eons until another Buddha arises, whatever length an eon has. But within those 5,000 years, there will be right in the middle a period of 100 years where the Dhamma is propagated and heard much further than ever before and far more people will have access to it we are at the moment in the 36th year of those 100 years and the Dhamma is heard much further than ever before and not only do far more people have access to it, far more people want access to it. In fact, there's a, an enormous resurgence of people wanting to know the Dhamma. So we are having this fantastic opportunity <clears throat> in this lifetime to realize the Dhamma within our own hearts 
I never to experience Dukkha again. And while we're doing that, possibly even be helpful to some others. Sowing the seeds of Dhamma wherever there is a fertile field. So it may be a dark time, it's certainly a time of technology and not of spirituality. We're still having this possibility and that's extremely comforting, I should think. Please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments. Now think of your most beloved person. And arouse the feeling for that most beloved person in your heart. Become aware of it. Know it. Feel the warmth and the embracing. The connectedness the care and the concern and then transfer the feeling from your most beloved person to yourself (laughs) no difference between you and another Become aware of the feeling for your most beloved person once more. Feel the strength of it and the warmth of it, the beauty of it, and then extend it to the person sitting nearest you, giving that same love to your neighbor. Loving is a quality of the heart, not depend upon the person.
think of your parents, whether they're still alive or not. And let that loving quality of your heart reach out to them. The feeling that you have for your most beloved person, let it spread and enter into their heart. giving them the warmth and the strength and the care and concern as a gift from you. Now think of your nearest and dearest people, the ones you might live with. And let the feeling you have for your most beloved person reach out to their hearts. Warmth, care, concern, togetherness, embracing them. letting them know how you feel. Now think of all your good friends and resurrecting the love you have for your most beloved person. You let that love spread out and enter into the hearts of each of your good friends. And you see that the more you give it away, the more of it you have.
and think of those people whom you meet in your everyday life. Anyone comes to mind. Neighbors, people at work, acquaintances, relatives, anyone who's part of your daily life and feeling the love for your most beloved person. You let that spread to each of these people, taking them into your heart, embracing them fully, knowing that they are no other than yourself. Now think of anyone whom you find difficult. And having the feeling of love in your heart for your most beloved person, you can reach out and give the gift of your heart also to the difficult person. From the fullness of your heart, you are able to extend it to anyone, even the most difficult one. 